Word of God. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. We read that far from God's word. This little group of Jesus and his 12 disciples had been in Capernaum in chapter 9. And in chapter 10, verse 1, if you look at verse 1, he had left there and went into the region of Judea. And here now in our passage, beginning in verse 32, he's going up to Jerusalem. The time stamp of this passage is when Passover was drawing near, perhaps sometime in early March, almost sort of in our time zone now in our year. The going up of Jesus to Jerusalem, which is featured prominently in our passage, was for a deeper purpose than simply to celebrate the religious feast of Passover. You notice it's mentioned twice in our passage that he's going up to Jerusalem. It's more symbolic. It's more poetic. It's more heavy. There's more said here than just his geographic mapping location. Jesus was actually going up to Jerusalem at Passover to become the Passover lamb, as we know. So you ask yourself this question. If you knew that you were going up the road to die there, would you be the first in your group? Would you be walking swiftly? Would you be leading up up the hill? Or would you be holding back and lingering and being reluctant? What was it that caused Jesus to be, as we read in verse 32, walking ahead of them? as powerful as that statement actually is. What was it that caused Jesus? And that's really the point of the sermon tonight. The answer is a willing commitment. I want to draw out for you the willingness of our Lord Jesus Christ. It brings us to the main point, as you see across the top of your outline, the commitment of Jesus to pay the cost required to save us calls for a commitment from us to live for him. We'll see the impact of Jesus on his disciples already. Secondly, the awareness of Jesus about his coming suffering, verse 33. And then lastly, the unwavering commitment of Jesus to the will of his Father. So point one, the impact of Jesus on his disciples already. The disciples are traveling with Jesus. He's on his way now up to Jerusalem. What was it that the disciples have learned about Jesus so far? Well, what they're learning is that Jesus was serious about going to Jerusalem. It reminds us of Psalm 122, one of the songs of ascent that groups through the years would sing on their way up to worship in Jerusalem, uh, ever since King David wrote the psalm. Listen to the words of Psalm 122, 1-2. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Again, I ask you, if you knew you were to die there, would you be glad to go to the house of the Lord? There's something about this passage, something about the willingness of the Lord Jesus on this occasion with this knowledge that ought to have a powerful impact upon us tonight as we dig in. What the disciples learned about Jesus so far is that he's serious about going up to Jerusalem. It's more than just physically. 
to geographically get there and be able to literally say what Psalm 122 said, my feet are standing within the gates of the city of Jerusalem. It's more than just geography, more than just arrival, physical presence in Jerusalem. That would be like saying, your feet made it to the worship service and the rest of your body as well. Here you are in the worship service of God physically. Isn't that enough? Well, no, our our presence here does not itself constitute true worship, now does it? Well, what does true worship entail then? It takes going up to Jerusalem, but something more. What's the more? What does it entail? It entails going up to Jerusalem to worship God with all of their hearts, to actually be able to say with the psalmist, to say with King David, I was glad when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord. Or like Psalms 84, 5, blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. It's in our heart to take the highway to Zion. We love to be in the presence of God and the worship of God. Are we in the worship with our hearts and with our minds? Was Jesus going up to Jerusalem with all his heart? And that's what we're finding. The answer is yes. Jesus was in this with all his heart. Look carefully at verse 32 with me. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. Did you miss something? What were they amazed about? Jesus is walking ahead of the twelve. The twelve were amazed. Amazed is one of those frequent words we find in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, We read on to discover, after we're told that the disciples, the twelve, were amazed, then we're told that the others, the followers, those who followed the other ones behind the twelve, the rest of the group, were not amazed. They were something else. What What is it we were told? The followers were afraid. They're afraid like a teacher being intensely upset with his students or the students being amazed to the point of freaked out by their rabbi's intensity and something's got to give, something's got to break. It's like watching a teacher be really upset with his students and the students reacting intensely to the rabbi. There's tension in this passage. This is the third time Jesus has said to them, I'm going up to Jerusalem to die. The third time. They understand And knowing that he's going up to Jerusalem to die, and knowing that he knows he's going there to die, he's walking rather swiftly. It's hard to keep up with a fella. They're amazed that someone would be this interested in going to their own death. Jesus seems to be leading, not just physically, but figuratively. He's leading them to worship. He's bringing the disciples to Jerusalem with an intensity that amazed them. The rabbi is intense, about leading. His students are amazed, and the crowds observing the dissonance between the rabbi and the students, it's palpable. And how is the crowd reacting to that? Our author Mark reports to us that the crowd was afraid. Their reaction was to be afraid. What is happening? This guy is amazing. This guy is intense. What is going to happen with this rabbi and his students? Do we really want to be here? How does the tension get broken? What happens next? Jesus took action. What action? We're told at the end of verse 32 what Jesus did. And taking the 12, again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. So Jesus stopped forward progress. We're not heading up to Jerusalem with moving our feet right now. 
He pulls only his 12 away. Come here. <laughs> Has a little meeting, Jesus and the 12. The other followers are at some distance. And he's speaking now privately to the 12 away from the following crowd. And once he did that, and only privately, Jesus began to speak to them about why he's so intent, why he's so energetically making his way to Jerusalem. He's explaining it to them for the third time. Because they're so amazed. And so they need another lesson. So he starts out in verse 33 by saying, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. Kind of look at each other like, yeah, we know this road leads to Jerusalem. Thank you for that. That's rather elementary. We're going to, to Jerusalem. What we do not yet have is the understanding of why such a pace, why such a gate, why such resoluteness. You're freaking us out. <laughs> we know where we're going. Why are you all in? Which brings us to our second point, the awareness of Jesus about his coming suffering. He was going to Jerusalem to bring an offering and worship. What's the offering? It's himself. He's the worshiper bringing an offering of himself. He's also the priest presenting himself to God the Father. He's also himself to be the sacrifice being offered in blood. He's not just going through the motions reluctantly. He's not just getting there physically so that his body can be there, so they do what they got to do with his body. Jesus is eagerly going to Jerusalem in order to present his body as the once-for-all sacrifice to the Father so that his people can be saved, so that we can get to the end of verse 34, that after three days he will rise. They're amazed at the genuineness of Jesus. They're already impacted by the eagerness of his steps heading towards his own suffering. And Jesus, the good shepherd, taking lead of his good sheep, how to go to God and worship, how to go to God at all. And the steady progress toward Jerusalem that will not be stopped is something that is studied, something that is repeated, something that is emphasized as Mark presents his gospel to us. Mark is wanting us to conclude that this is not a setback for Jesus to go to this cross. It's not an afterthought for Jesus to go to Jerusalem. It's not an accident that he happened to be there, they arrested him, and oh no, they're going to kill him. It's the mission of Jesus to go to Jerusalem. It's the mission of Jesus to come into this world to get to that cross. It's why he came. Consider how Jesus put it ever so clearly in verse 45, which is beyond our passage, but I need to remind you of it here now. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's what he came for. It's why he came to earth in the first place, to go to Jerusalem and specifically to go to Jerusalem's cross. The third time he's teaching this, Mark has presented all three times to us that Jesus has said this again. And all three times, Jesus has made clear what will happen will have its implications on those who follow. In the first time, Mark 8.31, the Son of Man must suffer. Followed by Mark 8.34, to come after Jesus required taking up one's cross and losing your own life for his sake and for the gospel's sake, and that is to save your life. The second time, Mark 9.31, the Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. But we're told that his disciples did not understand The third time, again, now here in Mark 10, 32, the scene is of a group on the move, 
up to Jerusalem they go. Who is in this group? It's Jesus, ahead of his 12 disciples, and it focuses the theme that Mark has been presenting for three chapters. These three chapters, Mark 8 and 9 and 10, stand together as the discipleship chapters. What does it mean? What does it take to be a follower of this Jesus, a disciple of this Jesus, a student of this rabbi? The focus has been presented for three chapters. What will happen after this third time? Do they get it now? Do they understand it now? Sadly, and as we'll see next time, you can glance at verse 37, where James and John will make a misguided request that reveals just how different their mindset is from the mindset of Jesus. Could we have seats at your left and at your right when you come into your kingdom? Do they understand it yet? Look at the end of verse 33. What will be the action of the chief priests and the scribes? They'll do two things. Number one, condemn him to death. Number two, deliver him over to the Gentiles. Now, why is that? Because the scribes and the chief priests don't have swords and spears and a cross. The scribes and the priests have words. They have the scriptures, after all but they don't have authority with swords and spears and a cross to take someone's life. So they're going to have to be in cahoots with the Gentiles, specifically you know which Gentiles. It's the Roman Empire that has swords and spears and a Roman cross. So this isn't going to be a just in-house Jewish story with a Jewish ending, is it? This isn't going to be just a a Jewish story about a Jewish rabbi and things he said, motions he made, the actions he took, and the words he said, and what happened to his followers. No, 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 no. Whatever happens to this one, whatever happens to this as he calls himself son of man is going to take place on the world stage, which is why he then goes on to say in verse 33, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. The Gentiles in the Roman Empire had swords and spears and the authority to put him to death on that cross. That is the world stage. Jesus already knew all this. Jesus is the one saying this. It's quotation marks around this that Jesus is saying this to his disciples. He understands this. Knowing this, he doesn't back out. Knowing this, he doesn't slow down. Knowing this, he's got a swift gate way ahead of them. Jesus remained willingly committed, which is the nub of the point of the sermon tonight. Our third point now, the unwavering commitment of Jesus to the will of his Father. Now we learn why Jesus was leading the way, why the disciples were amazed, why Jesus is so committed. It's the will of his Father that he's intent on fulfilling. Like Isaiah 50, verse 7, we read about the suffering servant who says, I have set my faith like flint. Sure enough, Jesus set his faith like flint to go to Jerusalem. If you've ever wondered what in the world that phrase means, flint is a very hard rock. It's a picture of his unwavering determination that will not be broken like the flint rock cannot be broken. I am going to complete this mission. Like flint rock, I set my face to Jerusalem. There's nothing that's stopping me. I'm going to do what the Father sent me into this world to do. That's what it means. Set my face like flint. The plan of the Father 
was the mission of the Son. And Jesus went into it all knowing how it would end. How do I emphasize that enough to you tonight? He knew how it would end. He knew how it would go. And he's heading there with haste for you. Listen to the rest of the verse from Isaiah 50, verse 7. I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. What does that mean? It means that Jesus knows how it will end after it ends. After his death, then what? That God the Father will not allow the sacrifice of Jesus to be meaningless, will not allow him to be put to shame, but rather, as he says at the end of verse 34, after three days, he will rise. He knows the end of his death. He also knows that's not the end. That He will rise. Isn't that also part of why he's swiftly walking towards Jerusalem? There's victory coming. That's why Jesus could say this statement, after three days he will rise, referring to himself, referring to his own resurrection. Is that not abundantly clear? Jesus knew of his suffering, yes, but Jesus also knew of his resurrection. Listen to verse 34. After being turned over to the Gentiles, Jesus knew all that would happen. Listen to the specificity and detail. Before he got to the city of Jerusalem, he says, They will mock him and spit him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. He knew all the suffering that would be required. And he knew that he would rise from the grave. And in doing so, he knew that he would fulfill the Father's plan and purpose for the salvation of his people. He knew that in rising from the dead, he would bring many other sons of God and daughters of God to God the Father. He knew about both the suffering and the victory. Jesus was in full agreement with God the Father on this entire plan, all the suffering and the resurrection. Start to finish. Jesus understood that the Son of Man from Daniel is himself, which is why he calls himself the Son of Man in verse 33. It's the same as the suffering servant from Isaiah, who is himself, and he knows that he's both. I am the suffering servant. I am the Son of Man. Why do I bring that up? up now, and why is it that he could be both? Because there's both a death, suffering servant, and a resurrection, the Son of Man, coming on the clouds with glory and the power of God. What is the Son of Man? The one who ushers in the kingdom and victory, authority, and divine power. Consider the words of the Son of Man from Daniel 7. I'll read both 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions that behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And lo, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now we're beginning to understand all that went into Jesus swiftly walking towards Jerusalem. We are also better understanding the teaching of Jesus just prior to all of this in verse 31. The last shall be first. Those who want to enter the kingdom of God must follow the path of the king, which is the path of suffering. We must become last. We take up our cross. We take up our position. Whatever place of suffering he assigns to us, we take it. But after that... We are glorified. This isn't the end of the story. The commitment of Jesus to suffer is a call for us to suffer. The commitment of Jesus to the plan of the Father, including the resurrection, is 
a call for us to be committed to the ultimate victory, a call for us to live according to the future ultimate plan of God. Live like children of God who are going to rise again. We live according to the final outcome. The eschatological future informs the now. Jesus is heading towards the earthly Jerusalem, but in that very same moment, he's heading to the heavenly Jerusalem. It's key for us. We're committed to the heavenly Jerusalem of glory, and so we must also be committed to the earthly Jerusalem of suffering. Here we are. We're called to suffer now. Glory's coming. To try to wrap this up, commitment is willingness, to remain willing. That's the emphasis. That, that's the underscored part of this passage, the willingness of Jesus. That, how does that apply to us? I mean, the title of, of the message tells you, commitment calls for commitment. The commitment of Jesus calls for commitment from us. How does that work? Where's the hinge? Life-changing commitment to a person is a willing substitutionary sacrifice for that person. The key word is willing. Either you opt out or you remain willing. Let me roll out a couple examples. You know you have to go through pain in order to remain committed to a person. If you're committed to a person whose life is all put together and has no major needs, it costs you nothing. It's delightful. Every one of us have met at some point in our life about four people who are like that. They have no major needs and just a blessing to being around. But if you're committed to a normal person, anybody else, the rest of us, you're committed to a person who has needs, a person who's trouble, in trouble, and a person who's being mistreated or emotionally wounded, it's going to cost you something to remain committed to that person. You can't love a broken person without feeling the hurt yourself. It impacts you. A transfer of some kind is required. Energy from you goes to the other person. Their troubles become your troubles. If you have a friend who's hurting, they need you to listen to them. And while you're listening, your fullness goes to them in their brokenness, and their brokenness comes to you, and you're emptied in some degree. It's called commitment to a person. It's willingness. If you're a parent, you know what this is all about, because every single day, if you're a parent of a young child, you wake up in the morning, and your children need a lot from you between now and bedtime. It's not just one day. If you're a parent of a young baby, you're basically abandoning your independence for 20 years. Get diapers, then baths, and a zillion kid books that are honestly just not entertaining anymore. You have zoo trips. You've already seen all the animals in the zoo. Same songs again and again and again and again. The same kid movies, and you could recite all the lines. A zillion meals. You can't have the good macaroni and cheese with the crumbles across the top because the kids prefer craft macaroni and cheese. And in the teen years, you become an Uber driver until they get their own license. Then you hand your car over to the child. And you know why there's bad parents? Because not many people commit that much. They won't allow their lives to be disrupted to the level that it takes to invest in that child all the way through. They won't pour themselves into the child. There's no willing commitment for the full 20 years. The result, the child grows up needy, vulnerable, and dependent. 
It's true of the coach to player. It's true of teacher to student. It's true of supervisor to employee. It's true of friend to friend. It's true of spouse to spouse. Commitment calls for a sustained, willing commitment, even on the horizontal scale. Now let's get back to our point and talk about the scale from vertical. Savior to sinner. What did it cost Jesus to remain committed to the twelve? They were not all put together, shall we say it that way? Jesus came to take the ultimate evil and make the once-for-all substitutionary sacrifice for them and for us. Sin needed to be paid for. It needed to be absorbed with a very high cost. That young mother wakes up and she knows what her day is going to be like if she's going to love her children properly, and it makes her tired just thinking about it before she lifts her head off the pillow in the morning. And then she multiplies that by the number of days from now until her youngest child is 20, and she gets so tired. And Jesus looks across humanity. He looks across humanity. And he does the calculation for what it would take to be willingly committed to us, to save us, to continue to invest in us. Knowing the price is going to be a moment in time when he will be put to death for us. He remained willing to pay that. Here's the thing to understand about the gospel. It's self-substitution of God for you. God could say, let there be light, and there's light. God could say, let there be sun and moon and stars, and there's sun and moon and stars. He can't just say, let there be forgiveness. The price has to be paid. Someone has to absorb the wrong. That's at the core of reality and the universe. That has to be righted. The wrongs have to be righted. It requires a commitment of Jesus to take the death in our place. No one who saw Jesus heading to Jerusalem in our text had ever seen anyone more committed to anything. It was a scene. Mark is understated here. It was a scene. The crowds were afraid. The dissonance between this rabbi and his students. The Chronicles of Narnia series in the book, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, try to express this willingness of Jesus in this way. When a willing victim who has committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack, and death itself would start working backwards. Beautiful. It's what we're trying to say. We only needed one Savior, one perfect man who would remain willing down to the final moment to save us when it came down to it, would not back out. And we find that man in this passage tonight. God, by his word and teaching of Jesus, reported Mark here, is showing us the willing commitment of Jesus to us. The suffering of Jesus was a result of a deliberate choice of Jesus to finish the mission. Constantly, deliberately, continuing to decide to complete the mission. He was a willing sufferer all the way through. Whatever the assignment from the Father, that assignment Jesus took up with zeal. We cannot study this passage without realizing some conviction on our part. You stand in the presence of this kind of commitment and you say to yourself, 
my commitment needs to rise. (laughs) Our Christianity can't be some hobby like working on a kit car on Saturdays whenever we have time on a Saturday. Our following of Jesus is not like knitting that you can leave for weeks and weeks on the pillow on the edge of the couch and later pick it up when you have a moment and ambition. Our faith in God is not like walking a dog on a leash so you can keep it contained on the sidewalk in all suburban propriety. It's not tame, this following of God. To follow an intense Jesus leads us with intensity, requires that we be intense about following him. Jesus came to give his life for others so we can't simply domesticate the expectations of his commitment on us. He's our master. He demands our all. The great Shema, the Hebrew word we've been discussing sometimes in Deuteronomy 6, is hear, listen, obey, love God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And Jesus picks this up and repeats it in two chapters here. In Mark 12, when we get two chapters ahead of where we are, Mark 12, 29, Jesus will say that of all the commandments of the Bible, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And there's no commandment greater than these. The commitment of Jesus is not matched if we go through the proper motions, come to the building, put your tie and dress on, sit in the seat, stand when we stand, sing when we sing. That's not enough. You could attend all the services and Bible studies, serve on many committees, give out coats and hats and scarves and meals and rides. And it's not enough if we don't give him our hearts. The commitment of Jesus is only matched when we commit our very selves to him. Jesus did nothing less for us, and he expects and accepts nothing less from us. Oh, and should I mention, it will be worth it. Whatever it costs you to follow Jesus with heart commitment will be worth it. Look back at verse 28. We studied previously. I'll remind you tonight. Jesus said, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Did I mention it will be worth it? There are a few promises in the Word of God wider than that one in verse 28, and it's an expression of the commitment of Jesus to you. It calls for commitment from you, and it expresses his commitment to you to follow Jesus with all your heart no matter the cost. Consider the last line of our closing hymn, fully expressed this way, All to Jesus I surrender. Lord, I give myself to you. Fill me with thy love and power. Let thy blessing fall on me. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. Let's pray. Father, we